From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. This is a case that has gone through six years of law courts. Certainly it's a scene that nobody likes to see, the execution of any human being. But when it becomes necessary, it must be done. Here earlier this evening, we got a glimpse of the electric chair. Indeed, it was a frightening thing to be sure. Growing up, I didn't know anything about the story. Nothing that was never talked about in our house. My name is Bridget McGee Robinson. I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am the granddaughter of Willie McGee. On the grounds of the Laurel Courthouse, they wait for the news that Willie McGee has been executed for his crime. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and tidbits of audacious audio we find all over the world, on the air, on the web, overseas, underfoot. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Welcome to Mississippi. I haven't been to Mississippi since I was a little girl, but here I am. I came here to find out what happened to my grandfather. I want to know the good and I also want to know the bad. I want to hear it from the blacks. I want to hear it from the whites. I want to know everything. On May 7th, 2010, a story called Willie McGee and the Traveling Electric Chair debuted on All Things Considered. Today on ReSound, we have the rare opportunity to pull back the curtain and hear from the producers about how they put that story together. They'll discuss how they wrestled with a powerful tale full of twists and turns and buried history and how best to tell it. The story begins with Willie McGee a black man who was accused of raping a white woman in 1945. It took an all-white jury just three minutes to find him guilty. Despite appeals from Albert Einstein, Paul Robeson, and William Faulkner, McGee was executed in Mississippi's traveling electric chair, the only one of its kind, six years later. The story continues with Bridget McGee, the granddaughter of Willie McGee. She grew up knowing almost nothing about her grandfather or his place in history. Once she found out what happened, she set out on a quest to unearth everything she could about his life and death. And she teamed up with Joe Richmond and Samara Freemark of Radio Diaries to document the process. Joe and Bridget came to the 2010 Third Coast Filmless Festival to share their thoughts and experiences in the researching, planning, and production of their documentary. Here's a recording of their presentation in front of a live audience at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. One of the exciting, challenging, scary things about doing documentary work is that you don't always know where the story is going. And that's, of course, a good thing because, you know, one of the best parts is when the story and the tape kind of surprises you. And that's certainly been the case with this story. It's, uh, I think, one of the most important and exciting stories that we've worked on because it's both a lost chapter of civil rights history, a very important chapter of civil rights history that is very unknown at this point, and it's also a personal journey. It's kind of like, you know, when history, you can tell history and you don't know what's going to happen next. And we are very um, excited to be working with Bridget to report and narrate her own story. Of course, we're in the middle of the pro- process, and that's a scary time. It's also a scary time to be pulling up the curtain in, in front of all of you. 
but that's okay. It's a bit of an experiment, and we're going to be playing. We're going to be talking about the story, um, about the reporting process, and playing some scenes that we've gathered. So I'm going to start by just maybe you could just say a few words about yourself. Okay, my name is Bridget Mickey Robinson, and I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was born and raised there. My mother is the youngest daughter of Willie McGee, and I am a general manager of a company called Battleborn Tactical, and what we do at Battleborn Tactical, and I'm not plugging in it. <laughs> what we do at Battleborn Tactical, we um, supply law enforcement and military gear. So growing up, what did you know about your grandfather? I knew nothing about my grandfather when I was growing up. I knew I had a grandfather, and I just thought my grandfather passed away. You first found some clue when you were around 14 years old? Well, when I was about maybe about 13 or 14 years old, I was helping my mother clean out her, under her bed. We cleaned out her room, and we were under her mattress. And in this plastic bag, she had this crumbly old newspaper article of in a picture of my grandfather and I got ready to pull that plastic bag out because I wanted to read it because it all had some also had some things about my grandmother in there and she snatched it from me and she put it back under a mattress and slammed the mattress down and she started crying and and then I asked her what's the matter and she just said oh nothing it's okay so you said you you remember this photo but you didn't really what did you think about this photo when you were at that, at that age? I remember you told me. Oh, when I saw that photo, I just thought it was a handsome man with his hands on, you know, a window. I had no clue that the, that was bar sales, that he was behind bars. Mm -hmm. Tell the story about your brother. Well, when I guess I was about the same around the age, 13 or 14, and I'm the youngest of um, six children. My brother is the oldest, and um, he was dating a white girl. And so um, she was gorgeous, she was beautiful, and she, he brought her home, and my mother completely flipped out. So being that age, 13 and 14, we were never raised, you know, my mom had best friends that were white, and we were never raised in that era, and I didn't understand why she, she completely flipped out on him. And so being me, the youngest, and could get away with a lot of things and say a lot of things that my older sisters could never have said, I said, what is wrong with you? Why are you tripping like that? You know, I'm talking to her in a smart attitude. And she just completely went off, and I just didn't understand that. And, and she wouldn't tell me why. She just said I was too young to understand. And I just believe now I know why, the fears of what happened to her dad. So it was maybe about, uh, I guess, um, late 90s that you started to find out a little bit more. Well, 1998, again, me, the coordinator, as they say, of the family. I wanted to do a family reunion. I wanted to know who our family was, so I was creating a family tree and planning a family reunion. And um, in the processes of planning the family reunion, I went, I knew my grandfather's name was Willie McGee, but I thought he was Willie McGee, the baseball player. So I was excited to tell the family that we had a granddaddy that played pro baseball <laughs> and so I went to do a little bit more research and then there was another Willie McGee that popped up on my research so I just happened to click on it and under the 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 name it said his children and it said um, Della, Gracie, Mary, and Willie and those are my mom and my auntie and my uncle so I got curious, and um, I printed the information, and I 
took it to my mother, and that was our first talk that we were able to have about my grandfather. While Bridget was researching this story, um, we were looking at this story too as more of kind of a straight historical story, and, and um, although we didn't know Bridget at the time, um, here's what we did know, just lay out some important facts about the story. This was an important chapter of pre kind of pre-civil rights history that had disappeared and not much is known about today. Uh, William McGee, as we said, was a black man convicted for raping a white woman, but there was a lot of controversy about the case and about the verdict. Um, the case got a lot of attention, letters from Faulkner and Einstein and a lot of international attention. It became kind of a, uh, used as kind of a, a symbol of American racism at the time and got caught up in, in some of the Cold War communism, anti-communism era. Uh, the case lasted over five years, going to the Mississippi Supreme Court for a few stays of execution, getting all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court for one stay. And the last appeal was led by Bella Abzug in her first major case. And in 1951, uh, William McGee was executed by Mississippi's traveling electric chair. Mississippi had the only traveling electric chair in the country at that time. Louisiana, Louisiana had one for a few years as well. Uh, but it was, at first it was the traveling electric chair that really caught our attention. And uh, when we went to Mississippi together, that was one of the things that we really wanted to find. And we ended up finding it in the woods outside of Jackson, Mississippi, down the long road at the Mississippi Correctional Officers Academy. And we can play the first scene. I had planned to come to Mississippi <laughs> so many times. Oh, man. And then I would back out of it. I kept putting it off, putting it off. This time I decided just to go ahead and do it. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know the good and I also wanted to know the bad. Hi. Yes, we wanted to come in and see if we can see the traveling electric chair. And it's like on a display. Yes, ma'am. But it's been here a long time. We've oh. had it a long time. Long time. But it's over in that front lot. Okay, thank you. And this is where they have retired the electric chair that electrocuted my grandfather, Willie McGee, back in 1951. I decided to come here so I can see it for myself. <sighs> okay. Mississippi electric chair. Mounted on a portable platform, waits for the executioner and moved the chair to the courtroom for the benefit of witnessing officials. Who in their right mind created this thing? I thought the electric chair would um, look like, I don't know, something made of metal with a head thing that comes off on your head or something. or That's really what I thought it would look like. But it's just a wooden rocking chair is what it looks like or a chair that somebody would sit on their porch and watch the cars go by. And when we were coming down that dark, long hallway to look for the chair, I can imagine how he was coming down that hallway to get in that chair. You feel what he's feeling. You can imagine what he's thinking. And it's like you're reliving what he's going through. Oh, I don't know. This is just, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to record anymore right now. You said at the beginning of that tape that you delayed a lot of times coming to Mississippi. Yeah, I did. Can you talk about why? Probably because of the horror stories I heard um, from my auntie, from my mother, 
probably watching too much Mississippi burning. <laughs> Just probably a little bit of combination of everything. And um, I didn't know what to expect. I was afraid to come because I knew I was going to be opening up a can of worms that everybody had kept hushed for so many years, even my own family never talked about it for 20-some, when I found out about it, I must have been about 26 years old, 27, somewhere in there. So for that many of years to keep it so quiet, I didn't know what I was going to get into. One reason I was afraid is because I remember my mother and my aunt and uncle came back after, um, some years after they were adults, after the execution. And even just their name, my auntie had to um, get them out of the city. I remember that, it just came to me. Um, so I was afraid, just my name, so I didn't, really, didn't know if I wanted to go Bridget Robinson or if I wanted to come Bridget McGee Robinson. And I knew it would probably stir up some, some stuff. I remember you talking about how you were afraid to go there and then when we met you, the shirt you were wearing <laughs> was the uh, McGee family reunion. You were wearing it right on your, I mean. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's because I'd made my mind up. I was going to go and do this. And I figured I was going to advertise as I did it. And so I put the McGee family reunion t-shirt on. And I was hoping that someone would come and ask me about the t-shirt. And then that way I can start inquiring. So, yeah, I did. This was a huge case at the time, and I know as you started to dig, what sort of things did you find? You, uh, you have, I know you have piles of uh, newspaper clippings and old photographs, and what were some of the things that you were finding out as you were digging? I think one of the most important things that stood out when I was researching this was the grandmother, which would be my grandmother, and the mother of my grandfather's children was incorrect. They had um, Rosalie McGee as my grandmother, and so that really just made me wanted to dig more into finding out what really happened and who was Rosalie McGee, because that is not the name of my grandmother. So I was really, really concerned about who this woman was perpetrating my grandmother. We're going to talk about Rosalie in a, in a minute, but um, you know, a lot of a lot of what's interesting in the story is the way people remember things after almost 60 years, and kind of with the different agendas and perspectives, and you know, the kind of funniness of of different of different memories. And two separate interviews that we did with people uh, talked about Bella Abzug, and there's a lot of a lot of bad feelings about here comes this uh, this northerner, this Jewish woman northerner, tried this case and coming into our business and all this sort of thing. Both of the interviews talked about, and when this black woman, Bella Agzug, came down and stirred up trouble, and uh, in both those interviews, we had to kind of correct them on one important fact. <laughs> um, after three trials and a lot of uh, stays of execution, uh, your grandfather was executed on, at midnight, uh, May 8th, 1951. Mm. And you've read a lot of these articles and the sort of descriptions of that scene at the courthouse. He was executed at the courthouse. What is the picture in your mind of that, that scene at that moment at midnight? The night of the execution. What do you imagine? What's, what's, the, what's your mental picture of that? Wow, so many things. I was thinking, I was thinking about what could he possibly be thinking about? That's what I was thinking. 
I was thinking, um, just by some of the pictures looking at him, it was just like I was touching base thinking, is he thinking about his family, his children? What is he thinking? What was he thinking about? Um, I mean, death was the ultimate goal for them. Um, was he thinking about going to the lecture chair? Or was he thinking about the fact that he was leaving his children and his heritage behind? Um, so many different things came to my thought as I was reading and looking at so many pictures till I had to just stop looking at it for a while. I had to put it down and actually I really start picking it back up when I got the call from Samar because I just had to just, just kind of step away from it because I was beginning to just it just too, it was taken over. You know, in, in radio, of course, one of the things we're interested in is creating these scenes. And so a lot of the scenes that we've done with you, going to the electric chair and visiting the courthouse and things like that. And uh, one of the things that really brought us into this story, even before we met you, was finding a, a radio station, a local radio station, broadcast the execution, the night of the execution. And miraculously, that tape has survived in a small um, archive in Mississippi, and I know this is not your favorite tape in the world to listen to, it's pretty emotional uh, for you, but this tape is really unlike any other recording that I think exists anywhere in the world, and so we're gonna um, just play a few minutes of it. This event tonight has uh, really, as you well know, created nationwide attention. From our vantage point here, we can see the passageway through which uh, prisoners are passed from the jailhouse into the courtroom, about all you can see up there. Uh, is a glowing cigarette or cigar and the occasional flicker of a match or a cigarette lighter as someone pauses to relight a cigarette. Uh, the, the main body of the crowd is facing the power supply truck which is parked in the little alleyway between the jailhouse and the courthouse. The Jews uh, will be bundled up through these cables that are running from the truck to the chair and uh, will of course provide the power uh, that will give Willie McGee the execution. It's now straight up of 12 o'clock, and certainly there can be no more than two minutes left to go. And I think perhaps the best thing we could do, Granville, is just hang this mic over and pick up the continual grind of that generator so that we'll be sure and pick it up. Jim, if you're listening, you might jack our gain up a little bit. Gentlemen, no doubt you did notice the difference of the two surges of power as the juice was turned on the electric chair. And of course, we have no way of knowing, but we just assume that that last surge was the final few thousand volts of electricity that meant the end of Willie McGee. Okay, Granville, thank you very much. I believe that our purpose has been fulfilled. I don't think there is much else that we're going to see. Certainly WAML and WFOR intended no sensationalism in this. It was simply that it was a news story, and we wanted to cover it as best we possibly could. So thank you all very much for listening. This is Jack Dix then returning you to your respective local studios. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. We're listening to a live presentation by Joe Richman and Bridget McGee. 
Bridget's grandfather, Willie McGee, was executed in 1951 in Mississippi's traveling electric chair for a crime he may or may not have committed. Bridget and Joe set out to uncover this lost chapter of civil rights history. Let's return to their conversation. Here's Joe Richman. After the body was viewed, Willie McGee was buried. But one of the mysteries, one of the many mysteries of the story is where. And uh, to this day, nobody is exactly sure where he's buried. Um, but finding the grave was very important to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I wanted to find his grave. One thing I wanted to, my mother and uh, my auntie never saw him since he, they were little. I think my mother was five, my auntie was a nine, my uncle was seven, and my other auntie was eight. They never got to see their daddy from that day the last time they saw him in jail. And so he never um, had a funeral. According to my knowledge, I found out some things different later. But I wanted to at least put some flowers on his grave. So describe the church that we ended up at. We end, we end up going to a church that we were told that may have given him a funeral service. And at this um, church, they had a cemetery to the left um, where supposedly some of the McGee family were buried back then. We went up to the church and um, we, I got out of the car. I don't know what I was expecting. It was this old Baptist church and then over to the side were these graves that were just on top of each other. And, and let me interrupt you there because we'll, we, we, we've got tape of this scene. Okay. I really want to go to the cemetery to see if I can locate his body. Um, I'd just like to know where it is so I can go and put flowers on his grave. He never had flowers put on his grave. How you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm Bobby Bender. Hi, Bobby. All right. Yes. I'm the custodian, the Sunday school superintendent, the trustee, <laughs> and <laughs> anything else they need me to do. Uh, trying to keep the church going, you know. That church was established in 1860, so it has a great history, yes. Um, we're trying to locate where my grandfather could be possibly buried, where his body could be laid. That's, that's basically the old cemetery. If they were buried during that time frame, they would be in this location right out here somewhere. Remind if I just look at the church? Ah, this is old and... Yes, you know, but there are a lot of grave sites out there. The markers have been knocked off and nobody ever replaced them. And all there is is just like a little Mound. indentation in right. the ground to right. show that there's a, a, a body that's buried there. So you're saying anything that's unmarked could be Willie McGee's gravesite? Yes. <clears throat> For all I know, I could be standing on top of his grave. Who knows? This was the moment I wish my mom was living so she could come out here and see this. You know, there's a lot of things that people don't remember about this story, as we found out, and, and a lot of people, a lot of things people don't want to talk about, even 60 years later. Can you talk a little bit about that, that the central issue, of course, was what actually happened. Some people said it may have been a consensual relationship between them. Some people said it was rape. Some people said nothing ever happened. A lot of it depended on whether you were black or white or where you come from. You talk about sort of the process of going around and trying to interview people who remember the story in Mississippi. Well, depends on what 
race you were. <laughs> we went to several places inquiring about information regarding my grandfather. And um, even to this day, I was just amazed at how people didn't want to talk about that story being 60 years old. No one wanted to, they knew things and they just didn't want to speak of it as if, okay, if I tell you, they're going to come get me. They were still had that mindset and that mind frame of speaking on this story and the tragic of it. And um, several people I went to, they would tell me so much, whether they were black or white, they would tell me so much and then they would not want to talk about it anymore. They didn't want to even discuss that history. They didn't want Laurel to be seen as a bad place anymore. So they were thinking, you know, don't, it's still taboo. Let's not talk about that because we finally got Laurel to a place where it's good and we don't want to discuss something that happened 60 years ago. The other tricky thing is that there are so many unanswered questions with this story. There's very little historical record. There are just a lot of strange and unanswered questions. And one of them, as you mentioned earlier, is the, is the story of Rosalie McGee. Yes. And of course, Rosalie McGee, during the whole trial and during the campaign to save Willie McGee's life, Rosalie McGee was his wife that went around the country um, appearing at rallies and even was uh, testified in the third trial. But Rosalie McGee was not his wife. No, Rosalie was not his wife. I don't know who Rosalie McGee is, but it definitely was not his wife. My grandmother's name is Eliza Jane McGee. I have no idea when I gave the picture to my auntie who, she's 72 years old now, that's his oldest daughter. She's funny. I showed her the picture and I said, this is your mama. That ain't none of my mama. I don't know who my, you know. So we can, we laugh about certain things now and we can smile about certain things, but when it comes to saying that Rosalie McGee is her mama, that ain't her mama. <laughs> <laughs> in which, of course, I have birth certificates and I have all the birth certificates, marriage certificates, and pictures of my grandfather and my grandmother. And so I don't know who Rosalie McGee is. So this is something I'm still researching to find out where'd she come from, who created her, how did she go around being his wife, and so forth. It's something we're still looking into. Yes. Um, but of course, one of the most important things that you were interested in, in this whole story, uh, Bridget, was what actually happened on that night. Yes. Was your grandfather guilty? Yes. And um, that's why we went to interview John Schwartzweger. John Schwartzweger was the, is the son of the prosecutor who sent your, your grandfather to the electric chair. Um, talk about going to visit him, going to interview him. Well, when, we went, when Joe told me we were going to see the prosecutor's son, I was kind of leery. It's like, you sure we're gonna go see the prosecutor's son? So we drive up and I see this house and I said, oh my God, this looked like a plantation. And I said, we're going to see the prosecutor's son? But when his wife opened the door, I was so amazed how they welcomed me. They were so nice and so warm. It was such a warm welcome that they gave me. And they, welcomed me into, me into their home and we sat and we talked like old friends, like we had a wonderful conversation. And I was looking around at the house and I was looking at 
how many colors was in the house and different furniture colors is what I'm speaking. And one thing that I noticed, I'm thinking, no, oh, it's so the, um, the modern furniture up temple, and then they had traditional furniture. And right in the middle of the floor was this big old chair on Merlin Monroe sitting in the chair. And I looked over and said, pointed to the chair, and he says, oh, and I'm going to speak my southern language. And he said, oh, that's my wife's damn chair. She won't let me get the damn chair out of the house, so we just just put the furniture around the damn chair and left it there. So to me, that was just like opened the door for me because that just cracked me up. And we began to talk, and he just began to share some things with me about his, about his dad. I know you were dreading talking to him, and I know that actually he was, uh, he was nervous about talking to you too. Yes. Um, he, he's family friends with uh, the Hawkins family, yes. who was the, the, the victim's side. Um, so what did you think you might be able to get from him, to learn from him? I was hoping somewhere in between his growing up, him and his dad would be working on cars or something and his dad would be able to tell him something about the story or what happened and why he prosecuted my dad or with, um, grandfather, excuse me, was that one of the biggest cases he had and I knew he was an attorney so I was thinking maybe he would have some information that he would want to share with me. This is our last clip. This is the scene from that conversation. It's a little bit longer, I think about four minutes. So this is uh, Bridget's conversation with the son of the prosecutor. Well, I, I remember the night of the execution very well. We were all standing in the kitchen. And uh, my father reached up in the cabinet and got a pint of uh, bourbon. The reason he got that pint of bourbon was to give it to uh, Mr. McGee before he was executed. My dad just wanted to do whatever he could to make it easier for Mr. McGee to face his own death. But my father also had an ulterior motive. He wanted to know whether or not Mr. McGee had actually committed the crime. And when he got to the courthouse, he took the fifth of whiskey, he hid it inside his coat, and he told the sheriff that he wanted to see Willie McGee alone in a room, just the two of them. And they sat and they talked while Mr. McGee drank the pint of whiskey. And my father asked him, said, uh, did you or did you not rape Mrs. Hawkins? Were you guilty? And uh, he got his answer. And my father never divulged it to anyone else, and I'm not going to divulge it now. What happened inside that room was just personal between the two of them. And uh, I think we ought to leave it that way. I wouldn't want you to go against your father's wishes, but I still want to know as much history as I can. I'm not looking for him to be wrong, nor I'm trying to find out if he was right. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. But it sure would make me feel better to know. I think I would just end my trip. I would be okay with that. I, I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying, but we have to take into consideration there was a pint of bourbon involved. I mean, this man was facing death in a matter of an hour or so, and, and what a person would say at that time, or not say, and especially if they had been drinking, I just don't think it's fair to repeat them. 
but I also know that a drunk speaks a sober mind. And at that point in time, what did he have to lose anyway? I, I wish I wouldn't have told you. Now, I, mean, I really do, because as much as I know that everybody wants me to say he said yes, he did it, or no, he didn't do it, is I can't say that. I'm not going to say that. What's happened is, has happened. It's, it's over. It's done. It needs to be put to rest. To keep rehashing something that happened 60 years ago can't possibly bring about any good now. I, I believe one day the truth will be revealed. It pains me dearly to sit and listen to, but me as a granddaughter, I'm here to get information because there's another generation ahead of me. They don't even know any of the history of what happened. So that's that's my place. Bridget, I, I just, just terribly sorry about the things that you've had to endure over the years. I, I, I'll give you your answer because I think you're entitled to it. And when I do, I think you'll understand why I'm going to breach what my father asked me to do, but I'm going to do it for you. Off the record, alone. Is that fair enough? That's fair. Okay. All right. Uh, we we did promise not to reveal the exact words of what he told us, but he gave us permission for Bridget to talk about uh, how the information made her feel. Bridget, how the information make you feel? Let's just say. I was, I had peace. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I'll say that my reaction as a radio producer um, to that moment, we're all there in the room together, uh, Samara, Harold, Bridget, and I, so, and uh, I was, oh my God, no, 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 please don't turn the tape recorder off, but we sort of realized that there is this incredible beauty of having something happen off stage, and that, that kind of, it's like radio, the magic of, of imagination and the kind of the silence of that moment. So the mystery of that moment. So everyone said, as John Schwarzweger did, nothing good can come out of digging. Uh, you know, leave this alone, it's been 60 years, leave it there. Why has this been important to dig into for you and for your family? Well, one thing, before my mother passed away, I remember sitting at her bedside and we talk about a lot of things and that's one thing she would make me promise that I would keep researching and keep doing what I needed to do to reveal the truth. And I believe my auntie and my mother really wanted to do that, but I don't think they, they just couldn't. Even to this day, my auntie, again, she's 72 years old, very wise woman, my, one of my best friends, and she, she has a hard time talking about it right now. And um, I want to know. I want to know. I want to know for my children. I want to know for my brother, um, children. They carry the last name McGee. I want them to be proud of that last name. I want to know. And um, I think I am more desperate to know now that my mother has passed is because my auntie is the only living child he has left. 
the only one. Um, she's buried her mother and my mother. We just buried her brother two years ago. And before I have to bury her, I want her to know. I want to know. That was Bridget McGee and Radio Diaries producer Joe Richmond from the 2010 Third Coast Filmless Festival at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi. If you have any questions or comments about this ReSound or any other, send them our way. Write to us at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Now that you've heard what went into the making of Willie McGee and the traveling electric chair, the research, the digging, the travel, the puzzling it all out, we're going to play a bit of the actual finished story. You'll notice that some of the tape you hear in the upcoming excerpt you already heard in the discussion of its development. But you'll see that in its place within the whole, some of this tape takes on a whole new significance. And we promise to give you an answer to the question at the heart of Bridget's search. In addition to the voice of Bridget McGee, you'll hear the voices of Raymond Horn, a reporter who covered the trial, John Swartzvager, the prosecutor's son, Harvey Warren, a man who grew up in Laurel, Mississippi, where the trial took place, and Ann Sanders, another reporter who covered the story. Here's an excerpt from Willie McGee and the Traveling Electric Chair. New York Times, April 1st, 1951. Several thousand demonstrators paraded in Times Square against the execution of Willie McGee. Several large groups chanted, Jim Crow, must go, free Willie McGee. One black man, one white woman in a little old town, back then probably 20,000 people. I don't know why this one struck a fire, but it, it blew. His case covered five years and five months and involved three trials six stays, and three state Supreme Court refusals. That was it. That was it. The Mississippi Correctional Officers Academy. Hi. Yes, we wanted to come in and see the traveling electric chair. Yes, ma'am, but it's been here a long time. We've had it a long time. Long time. But it's over in that front lot. Okay, thank you. Mississippi used to have what they called a traveling electric chair. They would take it from town to town. They would set it up in the courthouse, electrocute the person, pack it up, and take it to the next spot. Then we come around the corner, and there is this electric chair, not on display, just sitting in a corner with some baseball trophies. <laughs> it was not what I expected at all. Is we sure this is the right one? I thought the electric chair would look like... I don't know, something made of metal with a head thing that comes off on your head or something, or it's just a wooden rocking chair is what it looks like. Chair that somebody would sit on their porch and watch the cars go by. Who in their right mind created this thing? I don't know, this is just, I don't want to record anymore. 
I'm sure that you have heard over both radio stations, WFOR and WAML, that all channels open to Willie McGee to save his life have now been exhausted, and the execution is to take place here this evening. I went up that night to watch the execution, and the crowd was already gathering. There were hundreds of people all over the place. The weather was good. It was a nice night because it wasn't too hot and it wasn't too cold. People were visiting with each other and, you know, talking passing time away. I think the majority of the crowd is now over here on this side of the courthouse where they can see and hear the power unit for the state of Mississippi's portable electric chair. The execution was broadcast on the radio. And I'll never forget to this day, as the announcer mentioned some young boy who had climbed up a tree. We note that there's a boy over here in a tree climbing ever higher into the branches. And was looking inside like the window where Mr. McGee was going to be executed. It's now straight up of 12 o'clock, and certainly there can be no more than two minutes left to go. And I think perhaps the best thing we could do is just hang this mic over and pick up the grind of that generator so that we'll be sure and pick it up. Jim, if you're listening, you might jack our gain up a little bit. Gentlemen, we just assume that that last surge was the final few thousand volts of electricity that meant the end of Willie McGee. Okay, Granville, thank you very much. Certainly WAML and WFOR intended no sensationalism in this. It was simply that it was a news story, and we wanted to cover it as best we possibly could. So thank you all very much for listening. This is Jack Dix then returning you to your respective local studios. Willie McGee's body was uh, taken to Pete Christian's funeral home, and my mother and father took me over there to see Willie, to view the body. And I knew what I was going there for, you know. It was like a business that had to be taken care of. I needed to go and see this here. And I did not close my eyes. I did not close my eyes because that was a specific message that my daddy wanted me to get. And that message was, you do not get connected with white girls. You see what happened to Willie McGee. And I understood that. And, uh, you know, my daddy let me see it long enough to get the message and then took me back home. After his execution, everybody pretty well washed their hands. That was the end of it. They said, we've suffered. The city has suffered. We're glad it's over. Let's forget it. The blacks and whites didn't talk about it between them. Even today, none of the blacks I've had that helped me through the years, we never mentioned it. They believed he was innocent, and the whites believed he was guilty. Simple as that. It's always going to be that way. And uh, it was just not a good thing to argue about it. There's one more person I really need to speak with. I am going now to meet John Schwartzfeger. His dad prosecuted my grandfather back in 1951. He was the one who basically sent my grandfather to the electric chair. So we came up to his house and I was very nervous. And he opened up the door and he, 
him and his wife. Yeah, so nice to meet you. And they looked at me and he hugged me. Y'all just go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Well, I, I remember the night of the execution very well. We were all standing in the kitchen. And uh, my father reached up in the cabinet and got a pint of uh, bourbon. And he took the fifth of whiskey, hid it inside his coat. And when he got to the courthouse, he told the sheriff that he wanted to see Willie McGee alone in a room, just the two of them. And they sat and they talked while Mr. McGee drank the whiskey. And my father asked him, said, uh, did you or did you not? rape Mrs. Hawkins. Were you guilty? And uh, he got his answer. And my father never divulged it to anyone else, and I'm not going to divulge it now. I wouldn't want you to go against your father's wishes, but I still want to know as much history as I can about my grandfather. I'm not looking for him to be wrong, nor I'm trying to find out if he was right. But it sure would make me feel better to know. I, I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying. But we have to take into consideration there was a pint of bourbon involved. I mean, this man was facing death in a matter of an hour or so. And, and what a person would say at that time, especially if they had been drinking, I just don't think it's fair to repeat them. But I also know that a drunk speaks a sober mind. And at that point in time, what did he have to lose anyway? I, I wish I wouldn't have told you. Now, I, mean, I really do. Because as much as I know that everybody wants me to say, he said, yes, he did it, or no, he didn't do it, is I can't say that. I'm not going to say that. To keep rehashing something that happened 60 years ago, can't possibly bring about any good now. But me as a granddaughter, I'm here to get information because there's another generation ahead of me that carries the McGee name now. And they don't even know any of the history of what happened. So that's that's my place. Bridget, I just, I certainly have a great deal of compassion for your family. I mean, none of y'all did anything. I, I, I'll give you your answer because I think you're entitled to it. But I'm going to do it for you. Off the record, alone. Is that fair enough? That's fair. All right. How you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm sorry. Bobby Bender. Hi, Bobby. All right. Um, we're trying to locate where my grandfather could be possibly buried, where his body could be laid. If they were buried during that time frame, they would be in this location right out here somewhere. You know, but there are a lot of grave sites out there. The markers have been knocked off and all there is is just like a little indentation in right. the ground to right. show that there's a body that's buried there. We might if I just look at the church. So you're saying anything that's unmarked could be Willie McGee's gravesite? Yes. For all I know, I could be standing on top of his grave. Who knows? Things are never as clear-cut as we want them to be. 
the words that my grandfather said that night before his execution. I've been keeping those words a secret. But recently, John Schwarzfeger has given me permission to share them. The prosecutor asked my grandfather as they were drinking, did you have sex with Willette Hawkins? And my grandfather looked up at him and said, yes, sir. But she wanted it just as much as I did. How do I feel about those words? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't think we will ever know the total truth, truth, truth. But I know what I believe, and that's my truth. And so when my kids and my grandkids, my nephews and my great-nephews, come to me and ask me who was my great-grandfather, I'll be able to tell them. This is the story of Willie McGee. That was an excerpt from Willie McGee and the Traveling Electric Chair. The story was produced by Joe Richmond and Samara Freemark of Radio Diaries, with help from Anayansi Diaz-Cortez, Ben Shapiro, and Deborah George. To find out more, or to hear the whole documentary, or to see pictures of Willie and Bridget McGee, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Nate DeMeo specializes in snatching bit players from the proverbial dustbin of history and trumpeting their quiet stories and accomplishments in his podcast, The Memory Palace. Here's another story of race and persecution but also redemption. It's called The Monsieur's Craft. This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. When she was 11, Ellen Craft was given away as a present. She was born in 1826 in Clinton, Georgia. Her mother was a slave, and her father owned her mother. And Ellen inherited her father's looks and his light skin. People on the plantation would say that the little girl looked like a member of her owner's own family. And this ate at the man's wife, having this girl around her house, reminding her of her husband's tastes and cruel habits. And when her own daughter married a gentleman from Macon, the couple got the little girl as a wedding gift, and the mistress of the plantation got rid of her. Ellen moved to Macon, where she worked in the fields all day, and she met a man, another slave named William, and they fell in love and got married, and whispering in their bed at night or when they passed in the fields or sat down for dinner, they plotted their escape. They knew that if they could get far enough out of Macon where no one knew them, Ellen could pass for white. But they also knew that wouldn't do it. A 22-year-old white woman traveling alone would have been weird. And a 22-year-old white woman traveling with a 20-something black man was out of the question. But one night in 1848, Ellen and William ran into the dark woods and kept running. And when they could be sure that they were far enough away from the plantation and the town and anyone who could recognize them, Ellen Craft became a white man. This was hard to do. 
It wasn't as simple as cutting her hair short and putting on men's clothes, which isn't simple anyway. Because imagine you're trying to travel a thousand some odd miles and even the most convincing drag, and your life literally depending on no one noticing that you're actually the other gender. And it's 1848. Beyond the hair and the clothes, Ellen Craft had to learn to walk and talk convincingly, like a young white man of means. And she didn't have any stubble, and she didn't have an Adam's apple, and she also couldn't read. So if she slash he and her slash his slave manservant ran into any trouble with the police or someone at a state border, she wouldn't be able to read a document. She wouldn't be able to sign anything. And they knew that the only chance they had of pulling this off and getting north was if they moved fast. And the only way that they could move fast was to take public transportation. By the time Ellen and William boarded their first train, they'd figured out how to do it. A young southern gentleman had suffered a terrible accident. He needed to go to Philadelphia for special medical treatment. He needed his trusty slave William along to care for him. The lower part of his face was injured and bandaged, which covered up his Adam's apple and his beard. His leg had been conveniently injured too, so he walked funny, no big deal. And his arm was in a sling, and he was terribly sorry, but he could only move it enough to make an X anytime he was asked to sign their tickets or travel documents. And the crafts played their parts on trains, in a passenger ship, and finally on a ferry to Philadelphia. The abolitionists ate this story up. It had everything they were looking for to help spread an anti-slavery message. It had a cool, vengeful slave owner, it had high drama, it had ingenious disguises, and it even had romance. Soon the abolitionist press had made the crafts the symbol of the struggle for freedom. And they more than took to the role, moving to Boston, the de facto capital of the anti-slavery movement telling their story all over the Northeast, writing on the cause of liberty and basic human dignity and the barbarism of American slavery. And they became famous. And so their former owner knew exactly where to find them. Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850. The law basically said that slaves were property and lost property had to be returned even if that property was now in a state where slavery was illegal. Even if a person had been living in freedom and working and building a business, and a family in that state for decades. And so when Ellen and William Crass, former owners, sent two agents to Boston to bring them back, the city of Boston had to let them. The slave hunters got official warrants and everything. But the people of Boston didn't have to let them. A group of abolitionists hid Ellen in another town. And William grabbed a gun and holed up in the house of another former slave, a guy named Lewis Hayden, who had gone from working as a man's property in Kentucky to owning a big house in Boston's schmancy Beacon Hill. And when the slave owners came looking for William, they were outnumbered and outgunned by free black men who didn't care about a warrant, and by Hayden, who stood in his doorstep with two kegs of gunpowder and a torch, and told the hunters he was ready to blow them and his house and himself up rather than let them take William Craft. The slave hunters left town, and the Crafts did too. They moved to England, where they kept writing and lecturing and telling their story for nearly 20 years. Three years after the Civil War, a time when the safety of free black Americans was still threatened in much of the country, and of course would be for decades and decades longer, Ellen and William Craft came back to the United States. And they didn't move back to Boston or Philadelphia, where many people would have welcomed them as conquering heroes. Ellen Craft died in Ways Station, Georgia, in 1891. 
where she and her husband and their children had lived for 23 years, growing rice and cotton and teaching in a school they founded. She was buried under a tree on the plantation that she owned. The Monsieur's Craft by Nate DeMeo from his podcast, The Memory Palace. To listen to more of Nate's historical tidbits, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Radio is a collaboration between a radio producer and the listener. I've never been on a date before. This is my first real date. If you were born into rough times, then it's just times. It requires a listener in order to see the pictures. Most of today's show was recorded at the 2010 Third Coast Filmless Festival, a day-long celebration of sound, story, and the art of listening. Well, I have good news for you. The Filmless Festival is happening again this year, October 23rd, at the Joffrey Ballet Rehearsal Space, and you're invited. The day will be filled with audio screenings of unforgettable documentaries and Q&As with special guests including Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap, and Jad Abumrad, host of Radiolab. The evening will culminate with our annual awards ceremony, honoring some of the most innovative producers working in radio today. Passes to the Filmless Festival are on sale now. Go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, for more information. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to the many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You should stop worrying.